You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Laster and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 35. Hi there, folks. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Laster, and I'm here to be your guide into worlds of the fantastic. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. But first, a brief update. As I told you in last week's episode, I was laid off from my job at the beginning of this month. Since then, I've been applying for new jobs outside of Montana, looking for the best opportunities for me and my partner Melanie. On Monday, I had a screening interview with one potential employer, and the recruiter is now showing my resume to lab managers within his organization. When I hear something more about this, I'll let you know. Last week, I put out the request for fans of this show to become patrons on Patreon to help me and Melanie through this difficult transition. So far, the response has been wonderful. More than 20 new patrons have already made pledges, and several existing patrons have increased their monthly pledge levels. New pledges are continuing to come in every day. To everyone who has pledged, thank you, thank you, thank you. You guys are amazing, and your donations are going to be a big help during this tough time. To everyone who has yet to make a pledge, if you can afford to chip in a few bucks every month to keep this show running, then please head over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. Every little bit helps, and as a thank you for your patronage, you'll get cool bonus stories every month, as well as bonus artwork. Today I'm bringing you the first half of Chapter 6 in my Metamore City novel, Things Unseen. This story started running in Episode 24, so make sure to catch up before listening to the following spoilerific recap. Metamore City police detectives Catherine Catane and David Silverleaf have just discovered a connection between two confounding cases. The man whom the Lightbringers found in Hunter's Hollow, who had been burned from the inside out by magic, was identified as Bernard Travers, a shuttle pilot for Kapler Pharmaceutical. That's significant because Ezekiel Kapler, the son and heir of the current Baron Kapler, was apparently plotting some kind of risky adventure with several of his noble friends, including Misty Halloway, the notorious socialite that Kate and David have been ordered to find. Bernard Travers was fired from his job in the Telvari Rift Zone soon after Misty, Zeke, and their friends went missing. Kate and David are pretty sure Zeke had something to do with it. Our detectives have requested phone and email records on Ezekiel, using their status as adjunct officers for Imperial Intelligence. In the meantime, they went to talk to the wizard Artax, who is seen working some kind of magic on Bernard Travers's body before the Lightbringers found it. Artax confirmed that he had cast an occultation spell on the body. Travers had been touched by a magical force so potent that many of the city's high master wizards would be willing to kill to possess it. Artax promised to help Kate and David locate Misty Halloway, but he begged them to avoid digging any deeper into Travers's death. And since the question of what killed Bernard Travers is exactly what the Lightbringers are trying to find out, Artax's silence could draw the anger of some very powerful people. Things Unseen A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 6 
Friday, April 6th, 2000, Christos Reckoning. When Kate arrived at work the next morning, Marcy didn't say anything. She just pointed at Captain Montgomery's office, with a very clear, glad it's you and not me, expression on her face. Well, Kate thought, I was bound to get this sooner or later. She knocked on the door twice, heard a rough, come in, from the other side, and entered with her head held high. Morning, Cap. You wanted to see me? Want is a relative term, the captain growled. Given his chosen animal form, he had a good voice for growling. Sit down, Lieutenant. Kate sat. Montgomery glowered at her for a long moment before speaking. Katane, I've got so many people riding my ass right now, the Sensi's Guild ought to give me a certificate of achievement. Count Halloway is demanding an update on the search for his daughter. Baron Kapler says you're poking into business matters that have nothing to do with your mandate. And Agent Starson is up in arms because you've claimed jurisdiction on his John Doe and haven't followed up on the leads. Kate waited. Well, the captain demanded. Sorry, Cap, Kate said. Didn't want to interrupt. When did you come up with that line about your ass? About twenty minutes ago. I needed something to occupy me while I was waiting for you to show up. It's very clever. Thank you. Really goes well with the crotchety old chief routine. Start explaining, Lieutenant. Yes, sir, Kate said, seriously. Our working theory at this point is that Misty Halloway went to the Talvari Rift Zone with Ezekiel Kapler, Sephra Henlassos, and Julia Mathias. Kapler Pharmaceutical has a major operation down there, so Ezekiel would have been able to get access. Bernard Travers seems to have been involved in some way that got him fired. We don't know the details, but he's a pilot, so he probably took them somewhere they weren't supposed to go. Whatever they were going to do, Lady Sephora was worried about Ezekiel and Julia's reasons for doing it, and anticipated trouble. This all happened somewhere between two and four weeks ago. We're not sure where they are now, but if Travers was in town, at least some of them must have made it back here with him. My guess is they're laying low. Montgomery grunted in acknowledgement. So what happened to Travers? We're not sure yet. It looks like he was killed by some kind of magical overload, but we don't know if it was an accident or if somebody did it to him on purpose. Whatever it is, it's got Artax freaked out enough that he's trying to keep a lid on it. He's afraid we'll have a magical civil war on our hands if the big boys hear there's a bunch of power up for grabs. The captain drummed his claws on the table. I don't suppose hauling Artax in for obstruction would loosen his tongue at all. Kate shook her head. This is Artax we're talking about, boss. If he doesn't want to be found, we won't find him. And if we do, he'll go to jail before he'll risk someone getting a hold of that kind of juice. (sighs) Eli, save us from heroes and martyrs, Montgomery sighed. You really think he'll help if we leave him loose? He's helped us plenty before. Can't see a reason he'd stop now. The cap nodded slowly. All right. I'll trust your judgment on it. What about Lord Kapler? Kapler's in trouble and doesn't want anyone to know it. Malcolm Ardvalos is trying to horn in on his turf in the rift zone. I don't know yet what kind of pressure he's using, but I wouldn't put it past him to use the noble's children as leverage. Montgomery frowned. If he had Misty, wouldn't he have gone to Count Halloway with a ransom demand by now? Maybe. But Malcolm doesn't really have anything to gain if he goes that way. Kapler's the one who has what he wants, and if Misty disappears while she's a guest of his house, he's the one who'll be held responsible. Halloway will take Kapler apart, and Malcolm will fade back into the shadows like he always does. 
If Malcolm tries to extort Holloway directly, he risks Holloway bringing the hammer down on him, and with Imperial intelligence behind him, he can swing one hell of a hammer. Montgomery chuffed a laugh. <laughs> Tell me about it. So what's next? Kate shrugged. Do like the man said. Find Misty and figure out if she's in danger. We're going to use their phone and email records to try to retrace their steps. Hopefully figure out what happened to them and where they are now. Good. And the Lightbringers? Kate sighed. I can't tell them what we're doing on the Halloway case, but they're still invested in Travers. I'll see if I can get them to start working the vampire angle. I'm pretty sure Malcolm's using mortal methods of coercion here, but it can't hurt for him to know the libs are watching. The captain smirked, which was a fearsome sight on his wolverine jaws. You've got House Halloway and Imperial Intelligence behind you, and you want the Lothanasi to play back up too? Honestly, sir, I trust the Lothanasi a lot more than I trust the Count or Imperial Intel. She grimaced, which is saying something. Montgomery barked once, or at least that was the best way Kate could think of to describe the sound. All right, get your ass out there and get back to work. Kate stood and gave him a casual salute. Yes, sir. And I'll let your ass get back to whatever it was doing earlier, which is, frankly, none of my business. Montgomery growled and threw an eraser at her. She caught it and tossed it back to him, adding a dozen illusionary erasers along with it. The captain ducked as the figments bounced around the desk and off the back wall, passing through him wherever they would have made contact. She bolted and headed for the bullpen, swinging the door shut behind her. The phone and email records were on Kate's desk when she got there, as promised. David was already in the process of poring over them. He handed her a stack as she approached. Thanks, she said. Anything yet? David gestured at a notepad where he had written down a list of names and numbers. I'm making a list of anyone Lord Ezekiel called more than twice, between March 1st and April 4th. I suggest doing the same for email, and then we can cross-reference the lists and start thinning them out. Good idea. Kate sat down and got to work. The WorldNet service provider had given them only the email headers, not the messages themselves. Kate would need a more specific warrant to get that much detail on a client's private correspondence. Even so, it was a massive amount of information. Ezekiel Kapler sent hundreds of emails every week. Two tedious hours later, Kate and David had their lists compiled and started comparing names. Some of them were obviously related to house business. These were crossed out first. Kapler Pharmaceutical employees who worked for the Telvari compound were flagged for further investigation, particularly if the subject headings looked suspicious or cryptic. Among the personal emails, four names stood at the top of the list. Julia Mathias, Mysteria Halloway, Sephora Hinlasos, and... Who in the hells is Harold Reigns II? Kate asked. Yes, I noticed that one as well, David said. He's not nobility. There's no house reigns anywhere in the Empire, as far as I know. No, but the name sounds familiar. Kate closed her eyes and started running back through her memory. The older and more obscure a piece of information was, the harder it was to recall, and she needed associations to draw it out. Kapler, the Rift, Project Lightpath. Lightpath, she said, opening her eyes. Dr. Cynthia Rains was the second-in-command on Project Lightpath. She called up an online encyclopedia on her computer and did a quick search. Yeah, that's what I thought. She had a husband, Harold Rains, and a son, Hal Jr. 
She scanned through the article on Reigns. She was knighted posthumously, so her son's a squire. Not nobility, but definitely gentry. What's his connection to Kapler? David asked. Working on it. The article on Hal Jr. was almost non-existent, so Kate flipped over to a generic search engine and did a cross-reference search between Ezekiel Kapler and Reigns. Thousands of hits came up, most of them in the entertainment news and gossip sites. Well, 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 Kate said, clicking on a link entitled True Blood Triad Turns Tragic. It was an archive of an old gossip magazine article, and it featured a prominent photo of a smiling Ezekiel Kapler with his arms around two other people. On the left was Julia Mathias, a compact, athletic-looking redhead without even a hint of her family's infamous rodent heritage. On the right, a slender, beautiful man with long black hair and soulful eyes. The caption read, Lord Ezekiel with his partners, Lady Julia Mathias and Hal Raines, Esquire, at the opening night of The Wolf Queen, a play sponsored by House Kapler. Apparently Hal Jr. was one of Zeke's lovers. Kate skimmed through the article. They tried to make it a triad with Julia, but they couldn't work through the jealousy problem. Triads aren't easy, David said. Even among my people, they don't usually last, and we're a lot more relaxed about our sexuality than most humans. Kate raised her eyebrows, surprised. Really? I thought elves took their promises really seriously. We do, David said, but we don't promise fidelity unto death like you humans do. Kate cocked her head. Why's that? Don't you believe true love can last a lifetime? You try living with the same person for three hundred years and see how long you believe that. Kate sat back, frowning. This article is pretty old. Hal split off from them a couple of years ago. I wonder why Zeke brought him back into the fold now. At a guess, I'd say it has something to do with Project Lightpath, David said. Harold's mother died on the mission. Maybe Lord Ezekiel thought he could put some old ghosts to rest. Maybe. Kate tapped her pen on her lips for a long moment. Then, making a decision, she picked up the phone. Who are you calling? David asked. Can I try to get a hold of Hal? She said. Even if he didn't go with them, he might know what they were up to. The call went to voicemail, so Kate left a message with her contact information. Let's see if that stirs anything up, she said, replacing the handset. In the meantime, David suggested, we should start figuring out which of these messages we want to see the body text on. If we work fast, we can get the search warrant by the end of the day. More paperwork. Joy. Kate pulled the stack of headers in front of herself once more. David, you really know how to show a girl a good time. Kate knew she wasn't alone the moment she stepped into the parking garage. A quiet tingling ran down her spine, and she felt an unexplained warmth against her skin. Her right hand twitched, and for a moment she caught the phantom sensation of something in her hand, ancient leather wrapped over steel. She sighed and crossed her arms. I know you're there, Janus, she called. Come on out and let's talk about this like civilized people. The garage fell silent for maybe twenty seconds. Then Janus stepped out from the shadows, dressed in the black business suit he favored during daylight hours. He wore dark sunglasses and carried his sword, the sword, a lemisil, in a scabbard across his back. The holy weapon glowed with a soft light that grew brighter as he approached her. 
Most of it was obscured by the scabbard, but she could see the light peeking through at the top and bottom. Janus took off his sunglasses. His eyes were literally alight, glowing like a pair of gas flames. He looked pissed. No, that wasn't right. He looked wrathful, brimming over with a righteous fury that promised swift judgment for the wicked. Kate stood up to him and put her hands on her hips. Cut the aura crap. You don't intimidate me. Janus smirked, and the light faded from his eyes, revealing a sort of wary respect. Elimicil still glowed in its scabbard, and Kate's hand tingled off and on with that odd phantom feeling, but the lightbringer didn't seem to notice. All right, Lieutenant, Janus said calmly. Let's talk. Why are you interfering with my investigation? Interfering? Kate said, incredulous. Janus, we've been helping your people. David went down to Hunter's Hollow and did a summoning for them. Which you then told them to ignore, Janus countered. I didn't tell them to ignore it, Kate said. I asked them to let us question the witness because I thought we'd get more information that way. Which you didn't. Which I didn't. But if Artax wouldn't help me, whom he likes and trusts, then he certainly wouldn't help you, whom he has more than once expressed a desire to hurl into orbit. Janus blinked. He actually said that? Explicitly, repeatedly, and in considerable detail. For an instant, Janus looked... confused? Hurt? But he hid the expression almost as soon as it appeared. No matter. The fact remains that you've been holding out on this, Lieutenant. Why have you been requesting search warrants for Kapler Pharmaceuticals' email records? Kate closed her eyes and sighed. I'm following up on a related case, and before you ask, no, I can't tell you about it. Why not? She looked him straight in the eyes. They were nearly the same height, and she didn't need to look up at him to do it, a fact she found gratifying. It's for Imperial Intelligence, Janus. I'm under a gag order here, and it's my ass if anyone finds out. She showed him the authorization badge she'd gotten from Count Halloway. Janus's expression grew thoughtful as he realized what it was. This is a matter of imperial security? She winced. It could be, yeah. Depending on whether Artax is right about what they found out there. Count Halloway wants it locked down tight in any case. Janus returned the badge. Have you discovered what killed Bernard Travers? Not yet, but we're working on it, Kate said. If it's a monster that needs killing, I promise I'll let you know. I'll swear by my name if you want me to. Janus waved a hand dismissively. Not necessary, Lieutenant. I know the value of your word. Kate quirked an eyebrow. I'll choose to take that as a compliment. The Lightbringer gave her a tight-lipped smile. Is there anything we can do to help? As a matter of fact, yes. I was going to call you about it, but I got buried under paperwork. I think the vampires are wrapped up in this. Janus's eyes narrowed. Go on. Bernard Travers worked for Kapler Pharmaceutical at their Telvari Rift operation. Malcolm's trying to get the Senate to bust up the Monopoly, which means he's going to be using his usual methods to gain votes. Janus nodded knowingly. Do you believe he was behind Travers's murder? Probably not directly, but he's definitely got something on Lord Kapler. It would be a big help if the Lothanasi could, um, gently remind Malcolm and his people to play by the rules. The Lightbringer bared his teeth, an expression far too predatory to be called a smile. 
I think we can handle that. He gave her a small bow. Good evening, Lieutenant. He turned and departed, disappearing behind a concrete pillar. Kate poked her head around it as she went past, but the Lightbringer was gone. Creepy, she thought, as she climbed onto her swoop and headed for home. He may be an asshole, but I'm glad he's on our side. And that's where we'll stop for this week, folks. What happened to Hal Raines? How will he respond to Kate's attempts to contact him? And how will Malcolm Ardvalos respond to Janus's warning? The mystery continues next week. This week I've continued working on the business side of Liminal Corvid Press, I completed the layout of the paperback version of Making the Cut, and placed an order for a proof copy, which should get here sometime next week. If everything looks good, I'll go ahead and release it for sale. And now, the feedback. Hi, this is Trish Ian. Episode 33, Just Coffee, opens up some fascinating possibilities. I'm excited to see Amelie working with the White now and uh, forming a cell with Morgan. I hope we get to see this progressing in the next book, if not before. Hi, Trish. Morgan's involvement with the White will be an ongoing plot thread, beginning in The Lost and the Least and continuing in the subsequent novel, when the battle between the White and the Syndicate takes center stage. Um, it's interesting that Amelie is calling the conspiracy The White, not the White Widow or the White Web or whatever. The person we've heard called the White Widow um, uh, is apparently called that because of wearing mourning garb, but I've thought that may just be a convenient way to conceal all the scars around her neck, as we heard about in The Three Graces. That is definitely an advantage of the White Widow's outfit, yes. And as Malcolm Ardvalos himself could tell you, surrounding yourself with a bit of theater and mystery is a great way to make yourself more intimidating. Maybe she is in mourning, but not for a husband, but for other people who've died, or maybe her own past life before Malcolm Ardvalos changed it. Those are both very distinct possibilities. The mystery of the White Widow's identity will not be answered for a while yet, but you'll get a few more clues later in Things Unseen. Jeremy Ducharme wrote in with several questions. He asks, 1. How stable are the noble houses of Metamore, and how do they stay that way? Given the popular Downton Abbey is entering its last season and showing the decline of the landed gentry in post-World War I England, it came to mind. Did they simply avoid the mix of declining revenues from farm rentals, brought on in part by cheap American agricultural products in real life, combined with high post-Great War taxes? Malcolm's screed in a recent episode of Things Unseen implies that the nobility has their fingers in a wide variety of pies. Did they just diversify early enough to avoid what happened in England? Or is such a potential financial death spiral in the offing? Hi, Jeremy. Part of the reason for the dominance of the noble houses is, like you said, they diversified early. Metamore was an early leader in the technomagical renaissance, partly because the dukes of Metamore were major patrons of both the arts and the sciences. 
Maybe when you live in a place where change is a daily part of life, you learn to become more adaptable. Another reason, frankly, is the Majestrix herself. In our world, revolutions and uprisings against the nobility happened because of a bunch of things, including financial mismanagement, food shortages, excessive taxation to fund wars and other misadventures, and the Enlightenment, which delegitimized the monarchy as the seat of authority. Now, let's consider Metamore. Right at the cusp of its renaissance, the line of ruling dukes was broken, and a wise, immortal demigoddess stepped in as regent. She needed the noble families to recognize her authority, or the kingdom would tear itself apart. The nobles could see that their status was precarious, because the world was changing, and merchants were gaining more and more wealth and more power. So they struck a bargain. The nobles would support Kaya's government— and Kaya would grant the nobles these monopolies in certain sectors of the economy, subject to her oversight and regulation. So Kaya doesn't have the legitimacy problem that human monarchs have, and she's wise enough to steer clear of most of the mistakes that cripple human leaders, many of which are rooted in short time horizons and a failure to learn from the lessons of the past. She restrains the worst excesses of the nobility, which could otherwise create resentments among the lower classes, and she makes sure that her people are kept fed and healthy. She can't avoid war entirely, but she doesn't fritter away millions of lives on matters of nationalistic pride or rush for territory. As a result, there's never enough discontent among the masses to trigger a revolt, and the noble houses preserve their spot at the top of the social order. There's huge economic and social inequality, but not enough actual human misery to inspire the people to take up arms to change it. And that's the thing about having an immortal ruler like Kaya. She's wise and benevolent, but she's also strongly influenced by the knowledge of the way things have always been. Social and economic inequality have been the norm for as long as humans have lived in cities, so that's the world Kaya knows, and she's tried to make it work as best she can. Imagining an entirely different, egalitarian social order is probably beyond her capabilities, and the process of getting there would be too painful and disruptive for her to accept it anyway. Jeremy continues, 2. That same part mentioned an asteroid processing space station. I recall someone was supposed to write a locked room mystery set on it. Did that story get written? And if so, where can I find it? The story you're referring to is Lies in the Dark. J. Daniel Sawyer was supposed to write that one, but he got sidelined by the need to do actual paying work. And then he started writing the Clark Lantham mysteries, and they pretty much took over his life. Those books are awesome, by the way, and if you haven't checked them out yet, you should. If you'd like to see Lies in the Dark get written, though, why not email Dan and let him know? You can contact him at dan at jdsawyer.net. Jeremy's next question is, 3. What is the Watsonian reasoning for Metamore City being so crowded? I know it's passed as a vital military fortification, which inevitably draws followers, if nothing else to ease the logistics of having to ship in every nail, shoe, and blanket from a distant storehouse. Is magic or another resource much more available or potent? I know it is a capital city, but D.C. doesn't even crack the top 20 U.S. cities based on population. That's true, Jeremy, but the U.S. is also a federated republic, composed of many member states. If you want a better comparison, look at countries that are unitary states that are or were led by an autocrat. France, England, Italy, Spain, Japan, almost all the countries in Latin America. 
In every case, you'll find that the capital is also the largest city, usually by a large margin. Autocracies naturally concentrate power in their centers, and that means that the population concentrates there as well. In Metamore City, you also have the fact that the citadel sits on a nexus of magical power, which makes it an ideal place for doing enchantments and other kinds of technomagical production. It also has a number of mundane advantages. It sits on the only land route connecting the populous southern provinces with the resource-rich northlands, and it also has the northernmost port on the west coast that doesn't freeze over in the winter. That makes it a natural nexus for trade, which means even more growth. The curse was a limiting factor for a few centuries, but once Kaya got it under control, the population started booming, and it hasn't slowed down since. Jeremy's last question is, Getting off things unseen, just coffee had me wondering a couple things. Would Morgan have given Amelie the time of day if the former hadn't known the latter before both became vampires? From bits dropped, Morgan's conversion was apparently forced as part of a syndicate plot. I'm sure that colors Morgan's view of even a voluntary conversion such as Amelie's, if Morgan even believes such a thing is possible. The short answer is no. No, Morgan would not have given Amelie the time of day. Given their shared history, Amelie might be the only vampire in Metamore City that Morgan would have any interest in talking to. Even then, she was halfway convinced it was a trap. Great questions, Jeremy. Thanks for writing in. If you'd like to share feedback about the show, send your thoughts in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com and on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow metamorphs, check out the Fans of Metamorph City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more stories fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.